Hello and welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And since this is our first episode, I thought it might be a nice idea to explain basically what our first exposure to Star Wars was and how we got into it. So I will hand the floor to you, Kirsty. So I'm sure you are probably better at expressing your experience than I will be. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing Return of the Jedi first when I was about seven or eight. Um, my brother was really into Star Wars, but I hadn't checked it out yet at that point. Um, so I kind of missed the whole Vader revealing himself as Luke's father, which in hindsight is kind of a big regret because obviously that's a, a crucial moment. But I don't know. I can't remember a time when I didn't love it after that, you know? Um, and I kind of dipped in and out of it over the years and was about 10 years old when Phantom Menace came out and loved that at the time, like I was a kid, so it really appealed. Um, I'm a bit more critical about the prequels now, but I can definitely see that their merits still. Yeah. But it was when The Force Awakens came out that I got really into Star Wars again and I've just been obsessed since December. The first film I remember is Return of the Jedi and it's a horrible cliche because obviously everyone thinks oh they're just for kids but I think it was the Ewoks I really like the Ewoks because <laughs> they were they're just so cute and I wanted one of them to cuddle and oh and also the main thing for me was having all my dad's Star Wars toys because he hadn't been a kid when the original trilogy came out but he had collected lots of merchandise because yeah. he really liked the films and so my dad had this most wonderful card box just filled with all the old Star Wars toys. And it was just the most fun thing in the world to get all the toys out and play with them and send them on adventures. And I think it's that cliche where I almost remember the toys better than I remember the movies from when I was a child. Yeah, and that was a really formative part of my Star Wars experience for me. Um, I missed the prequels and cinemas for reasons that I can't really recall anymore. But, like, I don't have big problems with them, as some people do. They're definitely not my favourites, but I think they're fine. Like, my the original trilogy will always be my main love when it comes to older Star Wars. Um, and, yeah, then, like you, I saw Force Awakens, and I was like, I am so into this. I love it. And I saw it eight times cinemas I think it, it got out of hand um and yeah I've never looked back <laughs> which might be a bad thing but hey here I am and I'm really enjoying it I love being in Star Wars fandom and yeah it's a great thing to be part of to, to me it's a wonderful thing um because I, I saw it lots of times in cinema as well and I hadn't been keeping up with all the stuff that was going on before it all the spoilers and stuff like that because yeah. I wasn't expecting that much like I, I'd heard that JJ Abrams was doing it I heard who who'd been cast and that the you know the original three heroes were coming back and everything and I was planning yeah. on seeing it but I I wasn't letting myself get my hopes up and I was mm. so pleasantly surprised um it's been great it makes you feel like a kid again no definitely like Force Awakens it, it was a strange thing for me so it's almost like I grew to love it because I had a really bad first experience of it in the cinema but that was purely because I saw it in this cinema that's very much like the pit in like Shakespearean era theatre. So it's like all the people jeering and laughing and talking and there's no manners and it was very uncivilised. And it basically tainted my whole experience of the film. Uh, so I remember the first time I came out of it, I almost felt a little disillusioned. It's also for me because I had 
read lots of spoilers so I knew very much what I was in for that couldn't help but shape my experience because when you read all the spoilers like I had you you kind of form a, a vision of the film in your head and then when the film's different from that it's almost like difficult to reconcile it and figure out what you've just seen yeah so it took me a few goes before I started to actually see what was actually there if that makes sense and really understand the force awakens on its own terms rather than the force awakens as the adaption of the making star wars spoiler reports which is kind of what i first went into for if that yeah. makes sense i feel lucky because i wasn't following any of that stuff just because it hadn't occurred to me beforehand mm-hmm. you know, i hadn't even heard of making star wars before then so um, yeah so I, I do feel lucky that the first time i saw it i got to see it with completely fresh and spoiled eyes got to know yeah. some new characters and hadn't really jumped to assumptions that maybe other fans had. And I'm I'm actually a little bit worried now because for episode eight, I am keeping up with the spoilers obsessively. Mm. And I'm kind of worried that even though we kind of already have this first piece, so it's not going to be as much out there as it might have been with The Force Awakens, I'm a little worried that it's going to colour my perception of the film in the same way that you're talking about. I'd just say that the most important thing is give it at least three goes in the cinema. And then if it's not for you by watch free, then sadly it has failed on all levels oh. and they can give up. <laughs> no, I need to <laughs> Hopefully that won't happen. Um, but yeah, like it does definitely alter your experience if you're exposed to spoilers beforehand. Um, it's certainly affected how I saw it. And in a way, I wish I'd done what you did and saw it fresh and just experienced it that way. But yeah, what what's done is done and... I, I know myself too well at this point. There's no going back when it comes to spoilers. Oh. <laughs> I, there's no way I could possibly resist. Actually, if... that's, that's something that we should probably say outright, that we will be yeah. discussing spoilers throughout the podcast. And we'll we'll give fair warning before we start talking about them, but this is not a spoiler-free podcast. So if you don't want to see spoilers yeah. for episode eight or Rogue One or anything else that's coming up, you probably mm-hmm. shouldn't listen to us. We will try to protect you if you don't like spoilers. We'll try but we can't guarantee that we'll always succeed. Yeah, and I, I would just feel so guilty if someone wrote in and said, oh, you spoiled me because you didn't, <laughs> didn't warn us that you were going to say something about what happens. And Yeah, so. we can have a clear conscience now, <laughs> so it's good. We've got that out of the way. Um, and on the subject of getting things out of the way, it's probably a good idea to move to news. So shall I begin with this? Yep, go ahead. Okay, so the first news story we have is that Star Wars veteran Warwick Davis has confirmed that he has a role in Episode 8 in an interview with News.com AU, answering with, I do, yes, that's all I can say, when asked if he would be making an appearance. Warwick also commented on what he believes we can expect going into Episode 8. Obviously, we're moving into the territory of Episode 8 very soon as well, and much like Empire Strikes Back, I'm sure it's going to deliver some quite impactful story moments. And it will leave us with some cliffhangers as well, which resolve in episode nine. So, have we got any thoughts on Warwick appearing in episode eight? Well, I think it's great news. I like him a lot. And, yes. But obviously his quote is very vague because he can't really tell us anything about it, what kind of character he's playing or yeah, sure. how much screen time he'll get. But it's good to know. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I like to think um, Warwick, um, what am I saying? Wicked might be making a cameo. Um <laughs> Wicket was my favourite character, I think, when I was a child. He's very cute. <laughs> he is really cute, and he, he befriends Princess Leia, and yeah, it's really nice. I, I kind of, the fact that he walks with cannibals sort of flew over my head. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, um, I, on a more serious note, so I really do like Warwick. I, I think he's really talented. Um, most importantly, he just seems like a really fun and lovely guy. Yeah. So I remember seeing him on stage at Celebration, and he, he's just so cool. You, you just want to be friends with him. And he's really great at setting people at ease. Like, so I saw him with Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And he was just so, like, good with her. Like, they were both, both like, on the level. And he knew exactly how to play Carrie, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess they've known each other for quite a while now. Yes, exactly. She literally knew him when he was a child. So I imagine in a way it must be strange for her to be interviewed by him like as a (laughs) grown-up. And also he has a scooter, man. He has a scooter that he rides through the audience. I saw that. He slaps people's hands. It's amazing. (laughs) I was sat in the wrong place, unfortunately. So I didn't get my hand slapped, alas. Yeah, that was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This part might be going into slight spoiler territory, spoilerphobes. So maybe skip ahead by two minutes or so if you're really frightened. But um, I thought it was worth mentioning that I remember back in April or March, I'm not sure how long ago it was, but earlier this year, I remember a spoiler report from Dubrovnik in Croatia where they were filming episode eight. And I remember there were some reports about Warwick being spotted there. Right. And that, that that's location is rumoured to be some kind of like swanky casino planet or something like that. So I do wonder if Warwick is maybe playing one of the aliens or something who's like on a gambling spree. That's obviously heavy speculation, but since he's at was at the location, presumably, there's some reason to believe that. Yeah. No, I think that's probably a reasonable assumption to make, but we'll see if anything comes out that contradicts that. But I, yeah. I remember seeing pictures of people in like fancy gowns and with their hair all done, and it yes. yeah, it looked like you know it kind of had more of a prequels vibe yeah Yeah. no definitely which i liked it it looked so different from anything in the force awakens or the original trilogy for that matter yeah which i think is a good thing episode eight needs to do that yeah for sure yeah and so we can move on and the next story is that we have adam driver was clearing up some misreporting about episode eight Basically, in a previous interview with Collider, Drive compared the upcoming film to The Empire Strikes Back, saying it has a different tone than The Force Awakens, a quote that quickly lit up the internet. Did he realise how quickly his comment would reverberate online? No, no, and that's not even what I said. What I said was the tone of it was different. I didn't say it was going to be in the vein of it. I was using it as an example, so poor example, he clarified. Next time, I should say, I'm trying to think of another sequel to a movie that's good. When I read the script, it was not what I expected in the best of ways. So what do we think about Adam's comments here? Um, honestly, I think it's a bit ridiculous that he even had to clear that up because his yeah. original comments were perfectly clear and I think a lot of the clickbaity headlines purposely misunderstood what he was saying, just that it would be like, oh my god, episode 8 is going to be exactly like Empire Strikes Back because that happens to be the most popular Star Wars movie. You know, yeah. like that wasn't what he'd said. Yeah, no, he didn't say that at all. Um, What he basically said was that episode 8 has a very different tone from episode 7 in the same way that The Empire Strikes Back had a very different tone from A New Hope. Yeah. That was literally all he said when he was using The Empire Strikes Back comparison. But like you say, I think these media outlets, they're just desperate for a headline. Yeah. So they immediately seize on something like that. And they're like, yes, go for it. Adam Driver compares episode eight to Empire Strikes Back. Because people are just lazy. They're not really interested in reading quotes properly. That that a lot of people will only read the headlines. Yeah. 
So now so many people are just going to have this impression that, oh, Adam Driver, Kylo Ren said that it's just like Empire Strikes Back. And I think anyone who goes in expecting it to just be a retread of Empire Strikes Back with complete, like an I am your father moment, they can be very disappointed. You know, it might even be that people want to believe that so that they will then surprise themselves when it's different. Because I don't agree with a lot of the criticism around The Force Awakens being very much like A New Hope. There are obviously some surface level similarities, but it's almost like it requires a kind of lazy reading of it to to think that it's exactly the same film again. It's not. Um, I have a friend who thinks about the trilogy in terms of a magic trick, and I like this analogy. She says that it's like the first film is the pledge, then there's the turn, and then there's the prestige. So if you think about it that way, The Force Awakens kind of set the stage, and it has this kind of illusion of this black and white world where you can easily see who the heroes are and the villains are. And then the next film's job is kind of to turn that on its head or shift our expectations in some way. And like yeah. make things a bit more complicated for the heroes because they're going to have to have challenges. I think that's a really great way of putting it. Perhaps the most interesting part of this whole like statement from Adam to me is that he says, when I read the script, it was not what I expected in the best of ways. And that is just part of the message we're getting, that this movie is not going to be like what anyone's expecting. Yeah. And what people are expecting is Empire Strikes Back. But of course, Empire Strikes Back was surprising and unexpected at the time. But that doesn't mean it still is. You can't repeat the same tricks that were used in the Empire Strikes Back and have them have the same effect. So you can't have Luke turn around to Rey and say, Rey, I'm your father. <laughs> it would just be completely laughable. Exactly. Because like all of the setup, it would just be so wrong, given like what we had in The Force Awakens. And it would also just seem so cheap like to literally reuse that scenario you know i'm not even considering that as a possibility because as you say the whole point about it in empire strikes back was that no one saw it coming you know yes you can go back and see how the it was unintentionally laid the groundwork and then you hope and you know the way that obi-wan talked about vader and anakin but you can't do that again and expect the audience to be surprised especially when the groundwork has been laid so thick in the force awakens so that Everyone came out thinking, oh, Ray has to be Luke's child. Literally everyone and their grandmother came out of The Force Awakens thinking, oh, Ray's going to be Luke's child. How nice. Yeah, that's like that she's not, to be honest. That's all I need to, yeah. know, to know that that's not what's going to happen because the filmmakers aren't stupid. Exactly, yeah. Like, it'd be bizarre for all of them to be saying, oh, it's so unexpected. It's so surprising and have the film satisfy everyone's expectations and be exactly what people are expecting. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think that's a great thing. People should want a movie that's going to challenge them and be different and, like, set things up in different ways. And like you say, I disagree with, like, this accusation that The Force Awakens is completely indebted to A New Hope. And that it's just a modern remake of that film or it's a soft reboot or anything like that. I like just don't agree. Like I can see where that accusation comes from. But like you say, I think it's based on a very superficial reading. And it's people, they're kind of like missing the actual point of things. And they're missing all the things that it does differently. And how the characters are so different. And how the fact that the characters are so different completely alters the narrative and the quality of what's going on. Yeah. And... Yeah, and that's what makes it an interesting and exciting film for me. And I expect those are the elements that Episode 8 is really going to run with. 
No, exactly. I'm excited. Because you can tell with The Force Awakens, they intentionally courted that nostalgia that everyone wanted from a new Star Wars film. And yeah. wanted to feel like they were in the old original trilogy again, but they still had to lay the groundwork underneath for the new trilogy. So yes. if you look carefully, you can see hints at that. But it, like you say, there's this kind of overlay of comfort food almost that made people go, oh, yeah, this is just like when I was a kid again. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go from here. We have a new Rogue One poster, which is a Russian poster that I believe was revealed at Russian Comic Con. And it's basically going back to that very familiar beach, which we've seen a lot from the Rogue One promo the trailers and so forth um, and it basically shows a discarded helmet on the beach with a bunch of stormtroopers in the background and basically it, I think it looks really cool it doesn't tell us that much but I think it does indicate that they're still very much going for that war movie vibe that they keep on saying they're going to do so I think that's the biggest takeaway from the image yeah I like it a lot um, I, I do like this beach theme that they're going with I think it's quite fun and it's very different from other Star Wars kind of imagery that we've seen before. I think the stormtroopers in the water looks a bit silly sometimes, but <laughs> yeah, fun. yeah. No, I I feel that as well. Actually, I like especially there in that poster because they're so clearly photoshopped. Yeah, into that image, or at least the guys on the periphery are, and it's just so obvious. It st- sticks out like a sore thumb. But I think that's also the reason why it sticks out so much is because it is unfamiliar to us. Like that whole concept of stormtroopers on a beach. That is just so alien. I remember people comparing the first Rogue One poster to come out of Celebration to like a holiday brochure. (laughs) (laughs) Like because it just made it look so idyllic and lovely. Um, Which I can kind of understand. But I do think the main takeaway from that use of imagery with beach is just that this is a very different type of setting and we're trying to do something new with this which i welcome yeah i like that it has that on the ground feel rather than just spaceships flying around because it is supposed to be like a war movie so it is you are supposed to have that you know combat feel i think it achieves that yeah no definitely and it reminds it's very much like what force awakens was doing in many ways in that um obviously it's lots of these uses of like real natural environments yeah like the forests that ray and kylo fight in at the end of the movie that's a very unusual setting for a lightsaber duel compared to what we've seen before and i found that really interesting and it created lots of great visuals like the image of like the lightsaber sizzling in the snow yeah it's really cool and exciting yeah i think they're beginning to use different environments and in a more visual storytelling way rather than just oh let's fight on a ship or do you know what i mean like it's mm. or in like in the prequels a lot of it was indoors um but now it's like part of the storytelling um so obviously a forest symbolizes something whereas a beach might hint something else kind of gives a more interesting layer to the film exactly yeah i think there's lots of potential like symbolism and stuff there which we'll obviously understand if it is there indeed when we actually see the movie. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah. Right, so we can move on to another Star Wars project. It's amazing how many there are when you actually step back from it and realise. <laughs> and this is the Han Solo movie. And this story is about potential female leads testing. And the story is from Variety. 
and it basically goes sources tell variety that salma and creed star tessa thompson power rangers naomi scott and zoe kravitz tested in london this week the female lead in the as yet untitled project the production not starting until early 2017 Directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller have taken their time in meeting with talent for the mystery female character, as well as the role of Lando Calrissian. This would mark the second round of tests. A previous round took place earlier this summer. While it seems like a decision is on the horizon, sources say it could still be a couple of weeks until one is made. So, what do we think about this? Well, I'm honestly really excited to see a woman of colour that's going to be like a, a lead in the movie. Yes, definitely. I think that's really positive. Yeah, and there are rumours yeah. that she'll be a Han Solo love interest. So yeah, I mean, I've heard that. How true that is, but I think that would be brilliant, to be honest. Yeah, I've heard um, in the comics there's a character called Sana Solo. Yeah. And she basically whipped up like a lot of controversy because she was introduced saying, I'm here for my husband or something like that. Um, and obviously it turned out it was just a sham marriage. She wasn't actually married to Han Solo, but she was introduced in this very sensational way. And I've heard people suggest that these actresses are testing for that role of Sana. Um, but I can't help but feel that's kind of lazy because really the only reason why they're saying it is because Sana is a woman of colour and the girls that are testing for the part are women of colour. Yeah. And that was it's like that I didn't know as well, but I'm fully prepared to be proven wrong because yeah, who knows, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. It's perfectly natural that people are going there. My brain went there. I think it was the first thought I had, but I think it's kind of the same impulse that made people think that Finn had to be like Lando's son or Mace Windu's grandson or something. Is kind of like um. Well, the thing about the whole Finn thing is that that they were. They were not casting Finn's character with the actor's colour in mind. They obviously are for this role. Yes. So that's that's what made me think a bit differently about it. But Yeah, no sure. But I you know, I don't know, I'm keeping an open mind and we'll see. I mean I'm assuming that relatively soon we'll we'll hear more about those characters. Yeah, no definitely. And I, I hope we get more information. In in a way I kind of hope that she's not Sana Solo. Like just because I, I kind of don't want these movies to be indebted to the comics and the TV shows too much. I think it's good to have a cohesive world. But at the same time, I do like the thought of making it bigger and introducing new characters, yeah. but we'll see. And even if she's a love interest, you kind of get the impression in A New Hope that Han has been around the block, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, the, the whole thing about him and Leia for me is that um, he kind of is revealed over time to be a big softie and completely falls for her, but... You, you get the sense that he has a bit of a slandering past. Yeah, no, totally. And I think there's this famous like deleted scene from A New Hope where just before he starts talking to Luke and Obi-Wan, he's actually like noodling with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> and like he basically like shoes her off when he gets the business deal in. And that it basically creates like a very sleazy image for him. So you can understand why they scrapped that. But I do think that is very much part of the character's past. I suppose, like, what you're saying about Han Solo's reputation and what we know about him as a character, that does kind of make me really hope that the, this woman, she's not just a love interest. I really want to see her, like, be more than that. Because knowing Han, 
you know it's not going to go anywhere. You know that Han will always end up with Leia and always have a child called Ben, and that 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 stuff is fixed. Yeah. So they kind of need to do it in such a way where it doesn't feel like at the they can't do it. So at the end of the Han Solo movie. Han Solo and his girlfriend are like deeply in love and they're like let's go on adventures exploring the galaxy together my darling because you you just know it feels so phony yeah I don't think it's like that like I think even if it's love interest it's not going to be the core of the story it's it's like they're going to be giving each other knowing smiles or stuff like that yeah sure and then maybe part on uncertain terms at the end of the movie like oh maybe we'll see each other again maybe not who knows like yeah what's in my head anyway i kind of hope she's just like a smuggler like maybe a rival smuggler or something like that i just like the idea yeah but yeah like this project's still so mysterious right now we know virtually nothing about it other than obviously it's got young han and it's probably gonna have lando and it's almost certainly gonna have chewbacca yeah and so on and so forth um, but in a way, that makes it quite exciting. And obviously, it's also going to be written by Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah, that's what kind of reassures yeah. me. Um, yes. He knows the character really well. Um, yeah. And loves him. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, no, same. I, I'm probably looking forward to the Han Solo mo- movie more than I am the Rogue One movie. So I think at least with the Han Solo movie, there is like a bit more wriggle room. I feel like there's more space to tell an original and compelling story with Han Solo. Yeah. Because um, it's not in quite as constrained a time frame as Rogue One is going to be, just because of when it's set. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious to see how they write Han, because, like, as we've said, when you first meet him, the whole point is that he goes on this arc from kind of a selfish, greedy... Like, not, you know, he's likeable enough as a character, but he does kind of have this arc from selfish to selfless. Is he going to be likeable in this movie? Mm. Are they going to make him super charming... But, yeah, it's just going to be... I don't yeah, think they could go either way with it, really. Yeah, no, you're right. That's a good point. Because, obviously, they can't give him that arc before he has the arc in The New Hope. Because otherwise it takes something away from it in The New Hope. If, like, he spends his whole movie being selfish and cynical, and then at the end he has this great moment of transformation where he decides to be heroic and help his friends. Like, they can't have an exact repeat of that scenario in the Han Solo movie, because Vice almost cheapens it when it happens again, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's, like, Lawrence Kasdan is very, obviously very talented, so if anyone can do it in a convincing and compelling way, he definitely can. Yeah. No, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the same, should be good. And then the final bit of news isn't really anything specific, it's more that we have had what is basically the equivalent of Force Friday for Rogue One, which basically means we've had a new wave of toys, which is, of course, a very important element of Star Wars fandom, because so much of it is about the merchandise. Um, and, yeah, did you get anything on Force Friday, Kirsty? Did you pick anything up? I haven't bought any of the, the Rogue One stuff yet, because I, I wait for the movie and then see which characters I love and then buy them. Mm. And I, it's That's yeah. pretty much how I feel. Yeah. It's it's funny actually looking back to last December because I remember talking to my husband about oh there's so much Star Wars merchandise everywhere I go I'm not buying any of it I'm gonna make <laughs> because this was before I saw the movie right so I was like yeah oh it's you know it's all about the merchandise I was so cynical you know it's all about making yeah and then now I've bought so much Star Wars stuff it's ridiculous yeah yeah I love the irony <laughs> I think I I was very much in the same boat like 
Although, but to be fair to myself, I did buy Ray and Kylo figures for the movie. You, you could say I had like a spider sense. Right. But I was like, I like these characters. I'm going to buy the figures. Right. <laughs> and those are the only two I got. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. It sounds that you've been keeping it with the spoilers, so at least you were familiar with the characters. I didn't even know Kylo Ren was Han and Leia's son. So yes. Um, I went in completely blind. But, oh, um, so for Rogue Friday, I, I picked up um, an unmasked, she didn't have her scavenger stuff on, but it was it was Ray and BB-8 with the saber um, oh, from Jakku, yeah. um, to go with the unmasked Kylo Ren that we got at Celebration. I got some unmasked Kylo again, which is bad. So I really have unmasked Kylo from Celebration, but basically it was the unmasked Kylo from Celebration. Oh my god, this is so sad. I don't feel like I can take it out of the packaging. The packaging is so nice. Um, so I bought another unmasked Kylo so I could take him out of the packaging. Yeah. And I'm very satisfied with my purchase. So it's good. Yeah. You can never have enough unmasked Kylo Ren. But Yes, exactly. I uh I took the celebration one out of the box, but I have the box positioned very carefully behind it because the box is beautiful as well. Like it has that yes. of him on the front. Yeah. That is really nice. Um the art on the like is the six inch black series unmasked Kylo. And the art on the box is actually quite funny because it reminds me of the um, Scottish Widows advertisements, <laughs> <laughs> um, which you'll, you'll only know, I think, if you're in the UK. But um, it's basically these adverts, these women, like in very dramatic, sweeping black cloaks. Yeah, they're generally stood on like wild hillsides <laughs> and they have these dramatic facial expressions. Yeah. And that is basically the mode that Kylo Ren is in on the art of the box and it looks faintly ridiculous is that it for your um force friday purchases yes that's that's all i ended up getting but i did see um there was like a box set of these 18 inch dolls um ray and kylo together oh wow oh my god 18 inch that's insane yeah so i was like oh maybe i'll buy that set you know that looks cool it's in them in yeah but it's it's obviously for children and not (laughs) but yeah they're huge so I was like, I don't, even, I don't have anywhere to put this. So, I think you'd be getting may- maybe mildly funny looks <laughs> if, like, you had the in-laws over for um dinner or something, and you had like rain, Ky- the huge rain Kylo on the shelf. Yeah. Well, the thing about it was, um, it wasn't really the toys so much that interested me. It was the box because it had a really interesting description of them fighting in the snow. Okay. Um, Can you remember like what kind of thing did it say? It, I can't. I don't have the actual quote to hand. But um, it was something like Kylo Ren promises to teach Rey that he'll teach he'll promise to teach her. So it's mm-hmm. in this very like neutral language, and then yes. that they both kind of go their separate ways to find answers. And it was yeah. it was just phrased in a very interesting way that made him sound much less villainous than I thought they would. So I I wondered if that was like a conscious shift in the merchandising after mm. the fact to kind of start people's perceptions of the character changing in preparation for episode eight. I, I, I definitely think that seems plausible. So I, I, now you're saying it, I think I remember the same box description. Um, because, yeah, the language, I seem to recall it was like, so. it was almost like politician's language. Right. It's like it really wasn't taking sides. And you'd think this is Souls. It has the light side and the dark side. You'd think it was pretty clear that the light side person was going to be in the right. But maybe not. Maybe that's what episode eight is going to question with us. So it's very exciting. Yeah, I just it was just interesting to note. It kind of surprised me when I was reading it. 
Yeah, obviously, like um, when I was in Forbidden Planet um, yesterday, actually, um, in London, um, they had a new wave of Star Wars books. And I think for Force Awakens, they had the Force Awakens pop-up storybook. <laughs> and I went and I read it and I was like going to my favourite scenes, like see how they were describing them. And obviously, because this book is aimed at three-year-olds, it was all written in the most boring, passionless language imaginable. Yeah. It was like Kylo um, uh, hits Rey with a lightsaber, but she deflects every move. Rey wins. Rey flies the Millennium Falcon to the island. Rey walks to Luke. Luke turns around. Luke looks sad. <laughs> it's like, wow, I'm glad I'm not a kid anymore. Actually, you know, it sounds funny, but that is kind of helpful because, um, and I don't know how canon that book is, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around, oh, does Luke Skywalker look sad or does he look hopeful or somehow pleased to see his long lost daughter? Do you know what I mean? So if you say that he looks sad, it's like, oh, okay. To be fair, that I'm not 100% sure that's what it said. I was essentially trying to paraphrase the kind of simple language it was using. Yeah. But like, so I, I can't guarantee that's what it was saying. But yeah, it was very much like reductive to the lowest level. Even the example of Ray wins the fight, there's been lots of, oh, well, was it a draw? Did he intentionally lose? Like, there's been obsessive discussion around all the possibilities. Like, yeah. nothing seems so clear cut. Everyone's kind of waiting for the next episode to see if they're right on their understanding. Yeah. Sometimes these like simple children's books, they can be surprisingly enlightening because obviously they need to be very direct and very simple. Yeah. way that the adult novelizations are not. So they can really help to clarify certain things. Yeah, exactly. Which is helpful. And I think we can move on now to our spotlight section. And this time it's all going to be about Ray. We thought she has basically lent her profession to the podcast, and we felt it would be a good idea to honour her by focusing on her story and her journey throughout The Force Awakens. So, we're basically going to do this by taking The Force Awakens step by step. When Rey is first introduced, it's obviously on Jakku, and we see her in the Star Destroyer, and she is obviously scavenging for goods. And I really, really like that montage, like, just because of the silence. Yeah. I really feel you get to know Rey, like, so well just by what she's doing and by the physicality of that character. And, yeah, I was just wondering, like, if you could give your thoughts on how she's introduced and what you think she said, that says about her. No, I love it, too. I thought they did a really great job of telling us in a very short space of time what Rey's day-to-day life has been. And, like, yeah. you can tell that's just the same thing every day, that she's just trying her best to survive, get as much salvage as she can, eat her meal alone, and then kind of have a bit of playtime with her helmet and just kind of try and forget what her reality is. It's really quite sad if you think about it too much, but I, I really love the music as well. I think they did a fantastic job with Ray's theme. I think that's probably the most iconic piece of music to come out of Force Awakens. It's really nice. I really love the opening. I think just because like, it says so much while saying literally nothing, because there's no dialogue. And the first dialogue we actually hear from Ray is in another language, when she's like yelling at Tito to let BB-8 go. Yeah. And up until that point, there's literally not a word from her. We only see her like going through the daily routine of her life and realise how 
like pathetic her life is. Yeah. And like it's like pathetic in the way of like the heroine in the Victorian novel. Like who's like just constantly downtrodden and suffering on account of the actions of others at every turn. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, there's just something so poignant and pitiful about it in like a way that you you don't get any of that from Luke, for example, when you first meet Luke. You can obviously empathize with Luke, but there's not that same kind of poignancy to it because with Luke, he has everything, you know, like he has foster parents who love him. He has like food every day on the table. He has a job. Like he has a career path set out in front of him, essentially, if he can be patient and, and wait for the season to go by. Um, but Ray, she has none of that. Like she's literally completely alone. I think a lot of people talk about the similarities between Ray and Luke. But I think what's really interesting is how they're different from each other. Yeah. I... And I think they're more different than people give them credit for. I don't think they're similar at all, to be honest. I get that, oh, they both in desert planets, but for me, that's about where it ends. Um, yeah. He he wants to leave. He's really bored, and she is desperate to stay. She's made an existence for herself out of waiting for her family. Yeah. She has that hope that if she stays put, you know, doesn't go off and have adventures, that she'll find her happiness. And yeah. he's the opposite. So yeah. I see that myself. Yeah, no, she's almost like an inverse Luke. Um. And again, I think you're right, people, they basically see these like visual cues. So they see that Ray lives on a sand planet, for example, and they just assume that, oh, that means she's loose. That means there's a connection. They're like trying to tease it. They're trying to allude to it. And I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. I think it's just part of honouring the structure of Star Wars movies that have gone before. But there's always a sand planet in the first movie. Yeah, and I think sand planet does symbolise that there's, you know, there's not anything growing here. There's not opportunity. Um, her life isn't going to flourish in that environment. Just the same as yeah. did, and and Anakin had to leave as well. Yeah. Um, so I I think that's to me what it represents. I don't think it's supposed to be like. I don't think it's supposed to be anything more than that. I do wonder if we're going to go back to Jakku. Like I think it's possible we will. Yeah, but Jakku itself, I think they could because there have been all these sorts of hints um, in like an aftermath life death. There were these hints that Jakku kind of holds all these different secrets. There was stuff in Ray's survival guide as well that yeah. could be buried underneath the ground in terms of like ancient powers and stuff like that. So I think we will return there, but I think you're right in that people are seeing significance in the use of that planet that isn't really there. There's a significance, but it's not what people often believe it is. Mm. Right, so to move on from the planet, obviously Ray's story properly begins when she starts meeting other people. And so she encounters Finn, and then in due course Han. And I was thinking, like, how do these characters change her? Like, what do these relationships mean to her? in relation to what she's had before in terms of human contact well like Finn and BB-8 kind of pushed Ray to leave the planet right like yeah it's, it's like she finally has a reason that's good enough to get out and help people and she had the intention of going back but it's those conditions yes. that kind of start pushing her through the story so it's it's a testament to how quickly her and Finn forge a connection even though when they first meet, she's quite aggressive and like, you just <laughs> yes. stack it and everything. 
that you can tell that they're going to be friends. Like it just goes that way very quickly for them and they quickly form a bond. Yeah, no, which is really, really nice. Um, and like you say, I, I love how when Finn and Ray first encounter each other and it's completely playing for everyone's expectations. And obviously it's kind of cliche at this point that the girl kicks butt, but there's still something very satisfying about seeing Finn get up and he's seeing this girl get smacked around. And he's like, oh God, I have to go and help her. And so he runs over and then he really sees her holding her own. And then like instead of him running to her to help her like she starts tearing towards him with like this awful like expression on her face yeah like preparing to beat him up and that's what that's uh, the reason i really like ray that she's not just all sunlight and rainbows that she has yeah. that aggression to her and kind of literally knocks him off his feet but <laughs> yeah. he's he's impressed by her you know yeah so that's yeah, really yeah exactly She's not just a sweet cinnamon roll. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think people like exaggerate that often. Like there's like this whole ray of light thing. Um, and there are these darker edges to her. And they are perhaps what are the most interesting aspects of her character. The fact that she does have this that anger and this rage and this hot temper. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Like I don't. Like, I'm jumping the shark a bit, but I don't see her making a good Jedi, really, because of those kinds of things. She she just seems, like, to care too much about everything. She seems too, like, passionate and invested. Yeah. Um, Almost reminds me of Anakin as well. Yes. You have someone coming from such a difficult childhood, and then they're supposed to have this traditional Jedi notion of letting go and not forming attachments and not having passion. I, I just yeah. can't see that happening, to be honest. But you yeah. don't know what they're going to do with the, the notion of Jedi's going forward, so. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's going to be one of the main questions, I think, going into episode eight. What the hell did Luke do? <laughs> what did you tell people, Luke? What did you decide the Jedi were? Yeah. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, But yeah, um, it's really interesting, the bond between Rey and Finn. And I really like how you really feel like how much it means to Ray to actually have someone who looks out for her for once because she is so clear she's never had that. Yeah. And again, it just adds to the poignancy of her situation and like just who she is as a character because you, when you see her like hugging Finn on Starkiller Base and she's like, you came back for me and there's just such like genuine deep emotion there. Well, yeah. That is really touching. The last time she saw him, he was leaving right he was going to be yeah him. and she was obviously disappointed but by the same token that was all she knew that was all she had come to expect people they leave her and they don't come back exactly and, and it's so interesting to me that with that moment when finn is leaving at maz's castle watching him leave is what triggers the start of the vision because when she watches finn leave she starts hearing herself as a child say no no come back come back so that experience of being abandoned actually triggers an old experience of being abandoned so it's like you get the sense of these repressed memories bubbling up to the surface yeah that's interesting um yeah and and that point at maz's castle is kind of when they both start to diverge obviously finn goes off to the more resistant side of the plot he goes yes. gets their help and helps take down cycle base and goes to rescue ray but in the meantime she's discovering that she has all these force powers and and kind of going off on that side of the adventure herself yeah no definitely like you 
it's interesting because obviously Finn and Ray that you they're very much like bread and butter in the Force Awakens. They're very often together, and you like associate them as like a double act, and you think of like who is the main two characters who like spend the most time together and are the most friendly with each other in this movie. And it's easily Ray and Finn, no question. They go through lots of adventures together and they form like quite a close relationship and they're they they really really care about each other by the end of it and it's really like touching to like see the depth of that and how far they're willing to go to help each other and look out for each other um but yeah like you say it's interesting because like even halfway through the movie you get the sense of them going in different directions um but even though they go in different directions that doesn't alter the fact that there's still this profound link there between them. Oh, of course not. And I think it's yeah. that link that actually becomes a major part of Finn's arc in this mm. because, and I don't want to compare him too much to Han Solo because obviously they're very different people, but yeah. at first he is kind of driven by this need to just escape from the First Order, get the hell away, save his own skin, which is completely understandable, but it's through his affection for Rey that he decides, no, actually there's something here that I need to do, I can't leave. So it kind of brings that full circle for him. And by the end of it, he's willing to face and fight Kylo Ren, which is pretty terrifying. Like, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing with that lightsaber. He's just got it. It's As far as we know, he's he doesn't have any training with it. He doesn't really know what he's doing. You can see that in the fight. But he has something worth fighting for now. Yeah, no, exactly. And, like, that's, like, the most brave act they could have possibly had him do. Because going into that fight with Kylo, Finn must have known he he was going to get completely slaughtered. Like, but that didn't matter to him. What mattered was protecting Rey and, like, putting her first, as he hadn't put her first back on Takadana when he'd still been thinking about himself. Yeah. So that is his arc. Like, it, like you say, it's very much like Han's arc from A New Hope in that he goes from being selfish in a way to being selfless. But it's different because, obviously, fan. Han starts out and he's selfish just because he's in it the game for himself he's just out for profit he's like just touring the galaxy doing what he wants he's quite loose and fancy free but with Finn he's out for himself because he's genuinely terrified like he's had this brainwashed childhood and like he knows exactly what they're up against which is why he's so frightened of the First Order and Kylo so even though there's the same approximate kind of arc it go it starts from a very different place, which makes it quite distinct, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um and so what do we think about Han's relationship with Ray? Like it's obviously he kind of comes the surrogate father to her, I guess. Yeah, to me he kind of fits into that role like um Obi Wan was for Luke and A New Hope. He has yeah. a mentor feel and obviously that parallels with them both dying at the hands of the villain. Yeah, um, definitely. But that kind of is an important part of the heroine's journey that that you know the mentor figure falls away and she has to pick up the saber and fight herself yeah no it's interesting um and and it's kind of an interesting irony as well because if you compare Han Solo and Obi-Wan that they're just so different yeah there's like just this grand irony in Obi-Wan like obviously being the force user in the New Hope and Han scoffing at everything and saying oh it's all bullshit it's all like magic wizards and stuff it doesn't mean anything Uh, but then by the time Force Awakens comes around 
then all of a sudden he's the one preaching the kind of things that Obi-Wan was preaching. Yeah. Like, even though he doesn't want to. And it's really interesting to see Ray and Finn, like, listening to Han. Like, Sivvy's telling these, like, legendary stories. Because these are, like, myths to them. They don't really have much sense of them as real, actual events that happened. They're stories. And I, I really like that. And I especially like how Daisy plays it. Because you really get this lovely sense of like earnest, childlike belief from her, in like when she's listening to Han explaining these things, and I just love it. There's something so genuine about it. Yeah, when he when he's saying, you know, it's true, it's all it's all true. You, yeah, you kind of forced to realise, oh, it, it's such a marked difference from when he was talking about it, you know, before when he was saying it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Yeah, because you know he has these key relationships with people who who are very force sensitive. He has Luke, Leia, and his son. Yeah, and their their powers have shaped the story of his life for better and worse. Yeah, so he's almost been buffeted by it. He couldn't really get away from it, even if he he, he thought it was all ridiculous at first. But it kind of shaped his life. So yeah, exactly. He married the wrong, wrong woman. I think <laughs> he wanted to escape it. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and like I think more generally with Ray and Han, I, I like that she's kind of like she ha- holds her own against him almost. Like it would be easy to like make her kind of subservient to him in a way because obviously he's the older man. He's like a legend from the original trilogy. Everyone loves Han Solo, but you don't get the sense that like Ray is like sub subservient or like timid around him or anything she's still got like her smarts and her snark yeah and that's actually why Han likes her yes he likes that he has this personality and I think in a way I almost get the impression with Han that he kind of sees her as like oh man I, I always wish you were the child that I'd had like I wish my son had like been more like you being like happy and like easygoing and like easy to get along with so obviously we get these allusions to Han's relationship with his own son being somewhat difficult and I also think back to Bloodline where we basically see Han like mentoring these like young pilots yeah and you get the sense that he's trying to compensate for this hole in another part of his life and I, I, I find that idea of like him taking a shine to Ray because He's thinking about what he's lost in terms of his son. Like, and that kind of feeds into how he relates to this young woman. And, like, he sees her and she's all bright and optimistic and hopeful. And it's like, this is what I like. This is what I can relate to and understand. Because, of course, the great irony being that Ray is every bit as force-sensitive as Kylo is. But Han doesn't know that at that point. Like, as far as he's concerned, she's just a girl who's good at mechanics and gets on well with the Falcon and gets on well with Chewie and just fits right into everything. So. Yeah, and she hasn't discovered that side of herself yet either. Yeah, exactly. You know, she she does have that sense of self that then gets shaken up a little bit once they reach Takadana. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's going to be interesting to see, like, how that awareness of her full sensitivity is going to change how Ray thinks about who she is. Because, like you say, like she doesn't really understand it at all. Like when she encounters Finn and Han on Starkiller Base after escaping, like I think she literally says, like, like I don't think I could even try to explain it or something like that. 
Like, because she just doesn't have the words for what's happening to her. Yeah. So she's clearly so overwhelmed and it's also new to her. And yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that changes her and like how what she comes to appreciate Ray as the force sensitive girl being. Like, and whether that will change her on some fundamental level or whether she still insists on remaining true to the kind of person she was before. Yeah, because when she's talking about, oh, Luke, I thought he was a myth. And I, I you know, I, all the Jedi were real. It's yeah. like she's completely removed from that mystical sense of the universe. Yeah. It's very like, you know, Jakku is all about survival day to day. So there's like this Maslow's hierarchy of needs that she's just got <laughs> very base, like just trying to get through the day, yeah. not to starve. And then there's this whole spiritual side of life that she hasn't had the chance to explore yet. So, yeah. Yeah. How is she going to tackle that? And is it going to scare her or is she going to leap right into it and suddenly be able to do all of these amazing things? I mean, we, we see mm. that she's very powerful, but can mm. she control that power? Yeah. No. And that's part of what, why Ray is so interesting. You really get a sense of her as this character who's poised on the verge of like all these like life changing events and moments because Ray throughout the force awakens, like she, she is quite steady. She doesn't have, like quite the arc that Finn does is such because Rey when she picks up the lightsaber against Kylo Ren at the end of the film you almost get the sense that she does it because that's there's no there's no other choice but to do that at that point it's not really her making an active decision to do that like it's her making that decision out of necessity because she needs to fight to survive and she needs to fight to protect Finn yeah it's not quite framed in the same way that Finn taking up the lightsaber is. Like, with Rey, it's, like, inevitable. Like, you have the Force. You are we're always going to do this. This was always meant to happen. Which, in a way, like, takes the decision away from Rey herself. So I'm really excited to see her actually making more decisions and, like, being, like, self-determining in Episode 8. So I, I do think we're likely to see more of that rather than like her just being swept along by circumstances. Yeah, I hope so. I hope there's more of a, a sense of agency. And and not to say that she doesn't make any decisions, because she obviously does. She decides oh, yeah, to sure. be eight, and that's kind of what sets things in motion. Um, but the Force, depending on how they, they convey it, it is kind of like, oh, you have these powers, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So what choices are you going to make with it? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's very much what, episode 8 is going to be about, it's going to be a pivot point um, and anyway I've been really really bad for going off script <laughs> so I will try and steer us back um, so yeah basically we get to Ray on Takadana and obviously she encounters Mars and perhaps most significantly she has that intriguing vision that has driven us all mad because <laughs> it could be read in so very many different ways and yeah, I was just wondering if we could maybe have a little chat about the vision and what we think is going on there. And like, in, most importantly, how we think those things relate to Ray, if they relate to Ray at all. Like, are they significant on a symbolic level? Or is there some kind of literal link between her and the events that we see? What do, what do we think? Um, I've driven myself crazy obsessing over this vision before. And... <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think to an extent it is supposed to be impressionistic. Um, so it's supposed to show that she's being flung into this world 
you know, full of characters who she hadn't met before and strange powers and it's very frightening. But then she yeah. does have little glimpses of, oh, she's been left behind. You know, she's begging people to come back. Is that a real memory or is it, you know, an idea or something that she created in her own head? I don't know. Um, and I get the yeah. that we're very much supposed to not know. So it's like, <laughs> yes. you know, it, it's obviously something that has us wondering and that's intentional. Um, but I don't, I don't know if everything is going to line up neatly with what we're shown. Yeah, I think people who are expecting every single scene in that to have a perfectly clear and elegant explanation by, like, by the end of all this, I think they're going to be disappointed. I think there's going to be certain elements of that vision where they're probably going to be. It's probably going to turn out that they're just there because it kind of looked cool. <laughs> rather than like it has any profound significance to Ray's story exactly because the editors talked about it before and you get the sense that there was loads of other material that was left on the cutting room floor so yes. they put something else in instead like it would have created maybe a different kind of mood but it was all to to kind of give an experience like it wasn't necessarily supposed to show Ray's life story or anything yeah no it's exactly it's definitely not like I Ray the autobiography <laughs> Like, it drives me mad if I try to think about it too much. Um, it's like the sound mixing as well is insane because you hear all these different characters speaking from across the whole history of Star Wars. You hear um, Obi-Wan, you hear Yoda, you hear Sidious, even. Um, and it's like, what does it all mean? <laughs> like, part of that is also supposed to be a quick walk down memory lane for the audience. Yeah. You know, because this Definitely. is kind of a reboot. So it's like, oh let's have a quick look back oh yeah there was this person this person this person then Luke bought Vader and and you kind of get glimpse. oh here's R2 and this might be in the future or the past it's just supposed to be like a quick quick look at all these different scenarios and I I honestly don't think we're supposed to be thinking about it as much as people have been but that's <laughs> what fans will do I think if JJ thought people weren't going to think about it he's very naive oh no I, 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 I don't mean like oh we're not supposed to. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. I just think people are going to be disappointed if they expect it all to be neatly sewn up. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, sure. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, so there are obviously key points that you're supposed to take away. Like, oh, there's Kylo Ren, and he's absolutely terrifying, and she's scared of him, and then she meets him, like, two minutes later. So yes. it's this kind of thing that you're being thrown into this destiny even if you run out of a castle, hey, guess what? You're actually running towards the problem, not away from it. Yeah, so. exactly. Again, it's another great irony, which The Force Awakens is very good at. Um, yeah, um, I, I like the question that it's not always clear whether what we're seeing is in the past or in the future, because there are certain things where we know exactly when and where they happen. So we know that Kylo jumping out in the snow, that's from the fight at the end at Starkiller Base. Um, although obviously it's different because in the vision Kylo is masked and he seems much more scary and intimidating than he does in the real scene. Um, and yeah, I think that's in a way a useful coda for the whole vision because it's basically saying, here is something, this is how Rey imagines it will happen in her vision, like her prophetic vision. But then at the end, we see how it actually happens and it's really quite different. So I think in a way, like it might be giving them too much credit, but I think in a way that's them almost giving themselves a free pass to say, 
look, we know the vision. Like, there is stuff in here that's important and significant, but you can't expect what you're seeing in the vision to be an accurate representation of what has already happened or what will happen. Yeah. Because things will change. Yeah. So that's so, where you see the Knights of Ren. There's been lots mm. of discussion about what that is, and I know for a long time some people thought that it was supposed to be in the same section as Luke and Artu, that it's like, oh, the you know, the Padawans were all massacred. Yeah. But we have spoilers already from um episode eight that are like, oh, we're gonna go back to the vision and we're gonna see more of those details. Yeah. So it you are supposed to get the sense that you do not have the full story. You have a very slim impression. It's it is and it's the impression that Ray has for now. So that's that's part of what colours her impression of Kylo Ren. Yeah, but obviously that's going to change over time because we have to have a story here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, and I I remember the first time I saw the vision, I found it interesting because there is a certain level of deception, like just in how it's cut, like in the way that so you have Kylo who stabs someone in the back with his lightsaber, and then he walks forward and he walks towards Ray, and Ray is strangely interactive with him. And she like starts to step back quickly because she's like frightened that he's gonna get to her, and then like it cuts very like aggressively to like little Ray being abandoned on Jakku when she's like five or so. And I know when I first saw The Force Awakens, that pretty much had me convinced that Kylo had left Ray on the planet just because of how it was cut. That was like the meaning being conveyed to me by the editing. Yeah. But obviously, since the film. We've learned things that basically completely eliminate Kylo dropping Ray off on the planet as a possibility. So I know that's not right anymore. And it's really interesting because the moment you think, right, I have it, I know what it means, is my beautifully constructive master plan about the vision and its significance. The filmmakers come out of a book or a comic and it completely tears it down. It's like ah yeah, and I and all that's by design as well, right? Because they wanted to encourage yeah. all of this speculation because they want the fans to stay engaged. But then, yeah, you know, releasing Bloodline a few months later was obviously intentionally planned to quash certain headcanons. So yes. that you know, she was at the academy and then got dropped off, whether that was by Luke or someone else or Ben, as you say. Um, now we know that didn't happen, so yeah. we'll have to keep thinking about different ideas right i think we can move on to the next part and this is basically ray encountering kylo and everything that comes next so obviously these characters they don't have many scenes together but the scenes they do have together are really quite striking and they're also very interesting and they potentially have ramifications going forward so I was wondering if you could maybe talk us through the first encounter between Ray and Kylo. Yeah, so obviously she runs into the forest and sees that everything's under attack. And she, she had the intention of leaving and not looking back, but then decides to, to, to stay and kind of help BB-8 get away. So she says, I'll, I'll hold them off, you, you go. Um, and then when she sees Kylo, obviously she's, she's tense, she's frightened, she has the gun pulled and start mm-hmm. shooting as soon as she sees him because he looks absolutely terrifying and he has a big lightsaber and he's waving it around threateningly. <laughs> yeah. In the novelization, it, he, he says things like, oh, you know, you, you were shooting and I, I was on the defense. You wanted to kill me. 
and he and he kind of says something similar again in the interrogation scene. He says, "You still want to kill me?" And it's it's interesting because you would think that yeah, of course she does. You're seeking her out, trying to get this map. Like yeah, you kind of get the sense that he doesn't realize how frightening he's being or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, in the novelization, those kinds of lines they make him seem completely not self-aware, right? In any way, <laughs> like they basically make him seem like what? I, I don't understand. Like, why are you trying to shoot at me? I, like, what? What have I done to you? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you've kidnapped her. <laughs> it's like, of course she's pissed. Yeah. But when he says things like "murders, traitors, and thieves," like, come on. Like, yeah. You know you could count yourself amongst that, Tyler. So, but you get the sense that he's like trying to show her, oh no, it's okay, you can trust me. I just need the map from you. Mm. Um, you know, but she's terrified because he does represent this other to her. He's like the yeah. opposite of what she perceives herself as. Um, yes. He's the opposite to what she's known before. He mm. is this like tall, cloaked space wizard in a mask. Mm. And she has come from somewhere completely different um, that, you know, she doesn't seem to know any four sensitives. I don't think she's seen a lightsaber before she sees the one that matters. Like, it's all very new to her. And, and it's kind of the same way, if you look at Luke and Vader's relationship, it's like he represents everything she's afraid of and doesn't want to be a part of. So it's like he, he is like the mirror image of her in some ways. But then in other ways, yeah. it's seem quite similar. Yeah, and it's interesting how... Also, like in the wider canon, like from what we know as audience members, they're also very much being set up as like opposites to each other, like in the sense that they're at two different extremes. So like Ray, she's like in complete poverty. She's like scrabbling, she's suffering, she's struggling to get by. And then Kylo, you have right now, we have the sense that he was born into privilege, that he's descended from this illustrious bloodline, that like he had every opportunity and every advantage and yet he still threw that all away whereas Ray, who had nothing she made all the right choices and she like rose up to glory and it's interesting because that creates like this apparent dichotomy between them yeah. without like any hope of reconciliation or overcoming that divide and yeah it's interesting to have a feeling that that is going to be one of the things that episode 8 complicates more in that we're going to understand that there's not that big a difference between these characters as we currently understand to be the case. And you can already get hints of that um, when he's reading her mind and says, you're so lonely, so afraid to leave. I think that's supposed to be him kind of telling the audience that that's how he feels too. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's very overt actually because he literally says, don't be afraid, I feel it too. Yeah. And it's like, what is he... He's clearly empathising with her on some level because he's saying, I, I too experience your emotions. I feel them as well. And I've seen some people say that that is Kylo like mocking her or like drawing attention to her fear and powerlessness. Um, but I don't get that because why would he empathise with her fear? I think I don't think it's about that. It's about him like finding common ground between them and like empathizing with her and trying to like say I'm more like you than you realize and I'm more like you than you want to admit. Yeah, and I, I think that goes hand in hand with him taking his mask off as well. He doesn't want her to see him as a creature. 
people yeah. wants to be like, oh no, actually, we're both young people. Like, you don't need to be afraid of me. I just need to take this thing from you. I need to have the map. Um, yeah. And then he gets distracted by her thoughts as he's trying to read her mind for the map. And mm. then you get the sense that that's partly why he fails, that he kind of gets distracted by that empathy. So yeah. they get into the struggle when he, he should have been able to take it from her just like he did with Poe. Yeah. She knows that she has the power. Obviously, she's Force-sensitive, and that's what kind of awakens that in her. But it's obviously not a normal experience for him. He's obviously very used to being able to take what he needs. Yes. So it shocks him. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, and what's I going to say? Um, yeah, I think from Ray's point of view, it's interesting because, like, she she's obviously so unsettled when he takes the mask off. Like, she's clearly, like, confused. That's the primary expression on her face. She's like, what? Like, no, that's not what should be underneath there. You know, it's completely subverts her expectations about what this creature in a mask should be. Um, and then I find it so interesting that in the end, when they're fighting on Starkiller Base, then, like, she can say, even when he has the mask off, even when he's clearly human, and say, you're a monster! Like, and it's almost like at that point, she's almost relieved because she's seen him do something so evil, so wicked and killing his father that that kind of negates the fact that he has this human face. Yeah. Exactly. Like, so she can still, like, believe that he's like this pure personification of evil. But then at the end, when she's like struck him down, and he's bleeding and lying on the ground, then you can see that it's all upended again. Because Ray's like, holy shit, like, if I did that to him, if I hurt him that badly, even if he's evil, even if he's done what he's done, doesn't that make me kind of a monster too? Yeah. And you can see that going through her, her mind, and I think she's really troubled by that. And it's interesting. I think so too, because um, obviously when she first starts to fight, she's very the impression that she just needs to survive, so it's all about defence. But then yeah. he muddies the waters by offering to teach her. Which yeah, probably not what she was expecting. It wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that comes through on her face. She she's like, what the fuck? Excuse <laughs> my language, but um, there's literally her expression. Yeah. She's like, why are you asking me this here? Like she's clearly completely baffled because it's just so out of context, and it doesn't make any sense to her. And again, I I think. Like Ray, she's in this very disadvantaged position in terms of her knowledge base. Like, I do think there's the indication that Kylo knows like more about what's going on than she does. I don't think he knows like her family history or anything. But I think he, he knows something extra that like informs his behaviour towards her. And yeah, that prospect intrigues me. Yeah, well he has that scene with Snoke when they you know, he says there's been an awakening have you felt it yeah you get the sense by the end when he looks at her as she catches the saber like oh okay now i've put two and two together you're the awakening yeah so he realizes you know it wasn't just a fluke back there in the interrogation scene she didn't just get me out of her head and get into mine for some weird unknown reason like this is all coming together we were supposed to meet and i need to teach you and obviously Frey doesn't want that because she's seen what he can do. Like, she's terrified of him and hates him right now. Yeah. Um, but it's this sense of being misunderstood that he's like, no, wait, you're really powerful and so am I. And maybe we can work together or something. 
And she's yeah. doing any of it, but it, it makes you wonder what's going to happen next. Yeah, no, and it, and it's like you say, it's so interesting because there's this big gulf between those characters at the moment—a very literal gulf <laughs> because <laughs> there's literally a tear in the ground between them at the end of *The Force Awakens*. Um, but yeah, I have a feeling that there is going to be movements there, like where they go towards each other in Episode Eight, because at the end of the day, they've already like swung lightsabers at each other. How many more times can we see them fight? Like and just be at each other's throats. There has to be more to it than that, and that's what I'm interested in seeing at this point because I don't need to see confrontation after confrontation. It's not Mortal Kombat where there's going to be just like rematch, rematch, rematch <laughs> until one of them is obliterated, and I don't think anyone wants that from a Star Wars movie deep down if they're really honest with themselves. Yeah, I think there will be ongoing conflict for sure because. He's being set up to be her shadow in like the Jungian sense of Star Wars. Just yeah, definitely was Luke's. Like there's a connection there, and she has to face it and somehow, somehow come to accept him or integrate with the shadow or whatever. Uh, yes, but that doesn't always have to take the form of a of a lightsaber fight. So maybe they have another one, you know, at the beginning of Episode Eight or whatever, whatever happens. But then the story has to move on, and they have to talk and and learn about each other so that the story can progress. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I find it interesting how at the end, when they're fu- like after the fight, when Ray has run off, and literally just as she's boarding the Falcon, I do like that she gl- glances back. They don't make a thing of it at all. There's no close up. They don't really draw your attention to it as as they could have. But I find it interesting that that's included because there's no one really for her to be looking back at apart from Kylo. And it's like, what's going through her mind at that moment? Is she looking back to see if she's being followed? Is is it like a gesture of fear? Or is it almost like a gesture of like sympathy? Or like, oh god, I'm sorry, kind of sorry I did that to you. Like, I still hate you, but I wish I hadn't mutilated you badly. <laughs> and it's obviously supposed to be ambiguous. And it's it's very quick, obviously, as you say. It's like not, it's not lingered on that moment at all. Yeah, I took it originally to mean that she'd seen Hux coming to get Kylo so that she knew that he was alive yes. and she could leave and kind of have as clear a conscience as she could that like, yeah. hey, I obviously beat him and kicked his ass and whatever, that's all well and good but okay, he's alive Yeah, I didn't kill him so I can rest assured in that knowledge Yeah Yeah, that was really interesting and I for one am very excited to see where Ray will be going in episode 8 me too. We are on to our next segment now, which is It Came From Reddit. And this time on It Came From Reddit, we're basically discussing a new Ahsoka novel, which essentially goes into the function of kyber crystals, which are the, I believe, the power sources behind lightsabers. So we basically have this rather intriguing post from, I believe it was originally from Star Wars Canon, but it was being reposted Star Wars Speculation is generally the reddit sub that i go to and basically it goes something like this the book goes rather in depth in on the nature of kyber crystals some of which has been talked about before in different forms of media the down low is that the kyber crystals grow slowly and uniformly waiting for the person they are meant for to the person the crystals were meant for the crystals would appear to glow and hum with a unique song which they could hear sense through the force 
To everyone else, the crystals would not glow and would appear to be nothing more than ice. Ahsoka talks about how, when the Sith Darkseid user got hold of kyber crystals, they'd bend them to their will, twist them with the force, causing the crystals to bleed, which in turn caused the crystals to turn a blood red. Ahsoka says she can sense at one point the six brothers' crystals were familiar, like she had felt them before in the Jedi Temple. She assumes that the temple had been raided after Order 66, and that Palpatine had taken a number of lightsabers and crystals stored there. It's possible to restore these bleeding crystals, as Ahsoka demonstrates in the book. While searching for the crystals for her new lightsabers, her new crystals sing to her over a great distance. She ends up fighting the Sixth Brother, and it's revealed that the Sixth Brother's lightsaber contains her crystals. Right, I think that's all we need to know, essentially, for the purpose of the discussion. But the main message I'm getting from this is that it, it basically seems like Wands and Harry Potter. <laughs> that is essentially what comes across as to me, that there's this innate quality in the lightsaber where it kind of knows who it's destined for and it will make itself known to the person it is destined for. Yeah, I, so to be honest, I don't know if this is because I've read too much fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. But I always assumed that this was how it was anyway. I, yeah. I don't remember if it was something that I learned from the Clone Wars or whatever, but I this is this was my understanding of kyber crystals and how sabers were made. So I don't know if it actually counts as new information. Or... Like it's new to me, but you probably know more about the canon than I do because I I'm really shameful. I've only seen like five episodes of the Clone Wars. It, it's not for lack of interest. So I am really interested. I'm just super busy and I haven't had time. Um. But yeah, like so while it's new to me, it absolutely would not surprise me in any way, shape or form if this has already come up and it's just something that's been returned to for this novel. Yeah. Because they can't really magic something into existence from nowhere. There has to be some kind of grounding to this mythology behind lightsabers and how they work. So I absolutely believe this has grounding and things that have already been established. Yeah. But like, I kind of wanted to bring this up because it's easy with a segment called It Came From Reddit <laughs> to make all about the ridiculous theories that you get on Reddit, which of course you do, which is part of the whole reason why Reddit is so fun and entertaining. But I do think sometimes you get stuff like this that's more interesting and it can actually provide people with source material and basically say to them, run with this. Yeah. Go and have fun and discuss it. And that, to me, is part of what's most enjoyable about being in Star Wars fandom. Just being able to look at this kind of information and then see a dozen people come up with a dozen different interpretations of it. Like, all of varying degrees of plausibility, in my opinion. But there's still something amazing about that. That It's like the Rorschach test, or how you pronounce it. Um, like, where what, like you show ten people the same ink blot, and they all come up with different explanations of what it is. And, yeah, that's like Star Wars speculation in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm guessing that, that this is something that people are running with with regards to how Rey found the lightsaber in The Force Awakens. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, no, totally. People are very much extrapolating this to, like, lightsaber appearing to choose Rey in The Force Awakens. Um, I mean, there's... There's also an episode of Rebels where Ezra finds his master's... Well, he's not his master at that point, but he finds a lightsaber and he's kind of called to it and goes into a room and discovers it, even though it's not his. 
and he doesn't yeah. he doesn't have a link to the the person yet he's not his master yet but because he becomes his master it could be kind of like this is your destiny you you mm. can't run away from it so yeah like i can understand why people like it's basically what people are doing they're using this as evidence in air quotes for why Rey is a Skywalker, because they're saying if the lightsaber chose her and it's sung its special song to Rey, then that has to be because she's of the Skywalker bloodline. So it was her destiny to possess this lightsaber herself. Um, and I, I just don't jive with that because there's nothing in this whatsoever that has any indication of destiny having anything to do with bloodline or who your family are or who your parents are. It's purely like just destiny is in there's that relationship between the saber and the person who will become its eventual owner yeah and i think it's important to remember especially the skywalker saber that there's no real indication of luke having a special relationship with the skywalker saber it's like he's literally like it's literally passed for him by obi-wan and like luke's like oh how cool <laughs> and then he's like turning it around in his hand he almost if he were to turn it on, like at one point when he's holding it, he'd literally burn out his skull. <laughs> he's holding it in such a stupid position. Like, there's clearly no, like, affinity or understanding there. It's just like, oh, what a cool laser sword. Nice. Um, and then in Empire Strikes Back, his hand is literally chopped off while he's holding the lightsaber. So if anything, Destiny is telling Luke, this one isn't for you, son. It's not yours. Yeah. Um, and Luke is obviously Darth Vader's son. So if this whole idea of the lightsaber choosing its owner had anything to do with genetics, then you'd think that Luke would have been allowed to keep possession of his father's lightsaber rather than basically having forced the destiny, whatever, like tell him in unequivocal terms that no, this is not your saber. Go away, Luke. Go and make your own. <laughs> Um, because yeah, like it, the whole argument where, like, the destiny of the ownership of the lightsaber is determined by who your parents are. That I just don't see any merit in that. No, I don't think this. I don't think that's what this is showing. I think it's just supposed to be that when people are making sabers, they are drawn to certain crystals. But obviously, yeah. Ahsoka is working in a very different time period. Um, mm-hmm. so for the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy, Jedi and Sith are very rare. Like, it doesn't seem like the Sith exists anymore, full stop. We don't know what Snoke is yet, but Kylo isn't a Sith. Um, yeah. And then he sees the saber and immediately recognises it, so you kind of get the sense that sabers are extremely rare at this point. And I don't know how easy it would be for Rey to find kyber crystals and create her own, but yes. in terms of spoilers for Episode Eight, making Star Wars have said quite repeatedly that they know that Rey is using that blue saber again in her fight with Kylo. Yes. So and and Luke still has his green one. So it's kind of funny that she took the saber to him, and he's like, "Oh, actually, I'm good. I've got my own." And... Yeah, exactly. Which I can't help but think it like plays into that whole whole idea of that saber was never meant for Luke to begin with. Yeah. Like, and... there's been this like message, like, "No, guys, yeah. like, make the green one." I have this idea that in 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 times when there have been lots of Jedi and they have access to the resources they need to make a saber, yes, that's how it would work, that they would find the Kyber crystal that was right for them. But, mm. you know, Finn uses that blue saber as well. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's a weapon and it's used as needed. Um, yeah. And but to me, the saber calling to Rey is confirmation that her destiny lies with the Force, with Luke, with the Skywalkers, 
but I don't think that means that she's blood related. Yeah, same. I'd pretty much agree with that. I think that's a very good summary. Right, okay. And I think that means it's time to move on to questions, which is always fun. And so the first question we have is as follows. And it's, isn't a re-release of The Force Awakens on Blu-ray or D- and DVD coming out this month or next month? And will it have extra features and more deleted scenes? And what those scenes will be and what will be learned from the extra commentary? Lucasfilm are so milking this whole thing. Yes, yeah. friends, they are milking this whole thing. <laughs> Could we expect? They love money. <laughs> Very much. And they know we're totally willing to pay it. <laughs> but I am, anyway. <laughs> Isn't this one going to be... Um... 3D though. Yes, it is, but from what I understand, there's still going to be like a Blu ray disc included that isn't 3D that you can play on any normal Blu ray player, for example. So that is why I'll be getting that. I don't have a 3D TV or anything, and I have no interest in getting one. But I want that commentary. I want to hear what JJ says. I, yeah, I, I. I don't believe he's going to really give that much away, to be honest. Oh, no, no, no. He, he's not. 100% not. But sometimes the silence can say so much. Maybe, actually. <laughs> Maybe it's it's what he doesn't say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which scenes will JJ go mysteriously quiet for? <laughs> that's what I'm excited for. Oh, and to answer the question, because, of course, that's the whole point, I believe this release is coming out at the end of the month on in October. And I've also read that in terms of deleted scenes, there will be some extra layer and the resistance stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I um, show her sending Corsella off to the New Republic. Yes, I think that's what I'd heard. And I wouldn't surprise me if that's what we got, because I know for a fact that there's at least several distinct scenes with poor Corsella, who we basically only see die in The Force Awakens. They filmed several scenes of her, so I believe we're going to see one of them. Um, and the other scene, which is more interesting, is I believe where Uncar Plutt tracks Ray and the Falcon to Maz's castle on Takadana and basically goes and confronts Ray and I think tries to get her back. And Chewie, in retaliation, rips off Uncar's arm. Oh, <laughs> it's a, a charming scene. <laughs> um, but I'm actually quite looking forward to that because I hate Uncle Plutt so much. He's really hateable in like the best way. Um, yeah, he's very like that Dickensian villain. Yeah. You know, keeping her down, and she's so you know she's an orphan with so much potential, and she's being just kind of taken advantage of in this horrible situation. So it's like, yes, he needs his comeuppance. Yeah. No, exactly. I think he's very much like the Fanadiers from Lemmys. Yeah. Up to raise Cosette. Although Ray's infinitely more interesting than Cassette. <laughs> Not that that's hard, but still. Um, like in that, he's just this horrible, awful person. Like this innocent child who he's just constantly exploiting in like the worst possible ways. And yeah, you, you just hate them. Although to be fair, these are the Fenadiers. They were somewhat entertaining and they could sing and dance and amuse you. Uncle Plat can't do that. So <laughs> the Fenadiers is the best movie. <laughs> But yeah, at the same time, I can kind of see why they cut that out because, well, until we see it, obviously we can't know for sure, but it doesn't seem like it would add too much to the overall story. Yeah. You know, now she's left Aku behind, just kind of pushed things forward. Yeah, I think it'd be like a bit of a strange hangover 
kind of from like the first act. Yeah. It's like, why are you here? It just it almost feels wrong just as a concept on Carplots on Takadana. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. It's very strange. Um, and and to be honest, from basically that scene with Plutz and Ray that's in the novelization, I don't know if it's the author being creepy himself or if this is how it was filmed. We're presumably going to find out. There's just all this like squirmy, icky subtext to that whole scene of uh, and Uncle he, like, Ray. Owns her. Yeah, exactly. It's like, mm. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's just not nice. And I think if that is actually. Like, some of the dialogue from the novelization is in the movie, in the deleted scene. I'm going to be like, so glad they removed it, so glad they removed it, so glad they removed it. It's like, you don't want to think about Uncoupled taking advantage of Ray. It's just too grim in so many ways. Yeah, but in a way, um, and I know, you know, it kind of has that Disney effect now. But, mm. like, objectively, Ray's life sounds like it was so horrible that you wouldn't be surprised if this young, attractive girl was kind of being leered at and, you know, someone wanted to take advantage of that. From a realistic point of view, that's pretty much inevitable that that happens. Obviously, I I think the real question is, would Disney ever go there and be explicit about acknowledging that this attractive young girl would face sexual harassment from this like whole host like creepy aliens <laughs> and stuff on this planet um but i think it is if we see that explored anywhere beyond this deleted scene where it's very plausible that it'll be touched upon i think we'd see it explored in the novel of some description yeah like so i think it'd be difficult to write like a book about ray as a young woman on jakku where you go into any detail about her experience without touching upon like that potentially like key subtext yeah. like because she must have encountered that and there's there's almost like an element of dishonesty in pretending that she didn't well yeah i mean there's all sorts of weird questions about ray's childhood because obviously aside from the obvious mysteries um it is kind of given that disney treatment and it's like well did she ever have to kill anyone you know mm-hmm. like it's yeah very disneyfied like oh i'm just sat here waiting doing my best to to work and stuff but yeah yeah she's like she's like a minute away from a song <laughs> right like like bb8 literally is like her little animal friend like yeah. in like every disney film like the princess is a sidekick like a cute little animal sidekick so of course ray has a cute little droid side sidekick yeah he's like the white rabbit that draws her down the hole into adventure you know yeah um so yeah, it does have that element, which it makes sense for the beginning of a heroine's journey. Yeah, but you you do wonder if they're gonna end up bringing any of that more realistic aspects of her childhood back into her journey. Like, is she gonna be challenged in episode eight when she kind of breaks away from that denial of abandonment? Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm yeah. really distracted. <laughs> no, don't worry, it's fine. We've both got very distracted I think, on that yeah. question. I, I was kind of hoping for all sorts of deleted scenes. Oh, I, yeah. I expected them, but I was like, oh, maybe they're going to show the bit where Snoke accuses Kylo of having compassion for Rey. No <laughs> way are they going to do that? Because yeah. they've obviously decided to keep it out because it seems like a big spoiler as to where things are going. Yeah. But yeah, one can hope. Yeah, no, I remember I asked, literally asked Pablo on Twitter, did they film it, Pablo? Like, sorry, to explain to anyone listening who doesn't know who Pablo is. 
Pablo Hidalgo is he's a member of the Libertal Story Group, which basically means he holds like the keys to the kingdom. That is Star Wars spoilers. So people constantly barrage Pablo with questions about what's going to happen, what has been filmed, what's going on. Please help us, Pablo. Please, please, you're our only hope, etc. etc. <laughs> um, that is some context. And yeah, basically, I tweeted Pablo to ask Pablo, did they film the compassion scene? And he's like, yeah, they filmed it. I was like, oh my god! I was so excited at the time when I found out. <laughs> yeah, because that is that is a big moment when you when you read the book, you're like, whoa, Snoke mm. came out on that. Because when you watch the scene, you're like, you, you pick up on it. Yeah, but to have that addressed as you know. The big, the big bad notices it. You, you feel like it's going to be something that actually drives the plot a bit yeah. more through the story. So. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. I, I kind of think they were initially going to be, like, more transparent about showing their cards. Yeah. When it came to that kind of thing, which is why they had that kind of dialogue, because that when you have like a scene where like the evil overlord literally accuses his crony of having compassion for the heroine. You are basically telegraphing in big neon lights. There is going to be things happening here that are not going to be straightforwardly adversarial. <laughs> like it, it, it's just so clear. Like when you have that dialogue like that, because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, it's very on the house. Yeah, um, which is kind of why it suits Alan Dean Foster. So that's really bitchy. <laughs> no, like I saw myself. To be fair, that's kind yeah. Of, um, how. Star Wars has traditionally been like obviously you get yeah. and turns, but also in the dialogue things are often very spelled out. Like yeah, Anakin, oh, what have I done? You don't <laughs> you don't get that with Kylo when he kills his father and regrets it. Yeah, his eyes exactly. red and then he looks horrified, and the script tells us that he's horrified, but mm. you don't get him saying it in this pantomime way. Yeah, so, I what... think that's actually half the problem with the Force Awakens because. I, I often see people and they're discussing it and they completely fail to notice these like whole what are to me like really significant and rich layers of the film and it's because it's not on the surface it's not written in the script like you say there aren't lines where Kylo says like oh I'm feeling awful I wish I hadn't killed that oh like it's not spelled out but that doesn't mean he doesn't regret it like it's all conveyed visually through the performance and through how things are framed and by how these characters behave and the ripple effects that actions have on other actions. Yeah. That's how it all comes across. But like you say, I think because precedent in Star Wars has led people to expect very like simple and overt stories where things are clearly communicated, like you say, through dialogue, then that means that the force awakens when it's been really subtle which i think is often really quite good at it means that these things are just completely missed and i think that's kind of a shame i think it will all make sense once you have you know the, the future films because, yeah because they are intentionally holding back on that stuff so that the story isn't given away i mean that that brings us back to the scene that we know was filmed and they cut it out and then it looks like they're not even going to include it in a, as a deleted scene because it would be a spoiler because it yeah. does say, hey, this guy who is supposed to be evil and prides himself on not feeling anything for anyone, just like he kids himself that he feels nothing for his father, he mm. feels compassion for this young girl that he just met. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I, I yeah. think overall it's better for the story that they've made these decisions to keep it out and kind of convey it a bit more subtly. But yeah. it does mean that in the meantime, you know, it's it's more open to interpretation. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and you got a very long answer to your question. Yeah, sorry, Oscar. <laughs> no, don't worry, it's fine. It, it's good. It provoked an interesting discussion. Right, so we can move on to the next question, which. I'm hoping your experience of Clone Wars and Rebels will help with Kirsty. Nice. So we will see. Okay. So the Clone Wars and Rebels, more so the latter, made a big deal of holocrons. We know during the Clone Wars they were all held within the Jedi archives, so it would be safe to assume that most of them would be held by the Empire to prevent the rise of the Jedi. But after the war, would Luke have have sought them out? It was also stated that combining Sith and Jedi holocrons could reveal dangerous secrets. It was shown, but interrupted, in Rebels. Do you think Frey and Ren might try this in Episode 8? Okay, so this I like this question because it's something that I thought too. Um, yes. At this week's Rebels episode had Darth Maul and Ezra um, working together to try and open these Jedi and Sith holocrons. So it, um, it was literally... Could I stop you for a minute and ask you to explain in real idiot terms what holocrons are? I'm really sorry. I know this is such a basic, no, basic question. It's not. It, it, it's like these little um, boxes um, okay. and they hold secrets. So they, they're they kind of imbued with the Sith and Jedi powers. So it's like the way people would store information, powers, secrets, and then people can open them later on if they have the right means of access. Okay, cool. Thank you. So, so Maul kind of tricks and manipulates Ezra into helping him open these. He keeps calling him his apprentice because obviously he really wants to take him under his wing. Um, so a Ray and Kylo situation. Yeah, almost. <laughs> uh, and it is this notion that okay, if we have the dark and light working together, what could they achieve? Is there is there something? Is there a way? to balance and what would that balance do um so they're sharing their powers to unlock these secrets um and yeah like she says that they were they were interrupted but um i do have this theory based on some of the things we've learned from episode eight um that obviously we know luke is at the first jedi temple um we've seen that big mysterious tree on the set um, and then Ryan Johnson mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark and Letter Never Sent, which mm-hmm. if people haven't watched that, it shows um, this group of geologists in a harsh um, environment working together to try and discover things. Um, so it does make me think that if Kylo Ren comes to Ark 2 and obviously Ray's there now with Luke, what was Luke there for? Because he wasn't just there you know, for the sake of it. He must have gone there for a very specific reason. And then Kylo's been trying to find him because yeah. the map isn't just about getting to Luke. It's an, it's finding Luke in this very specific place. Mm. So I feel like Act 2 is going to kind of hold these secrets that are going to be very important to the story. Yeah, no, definitely. That's all really interesting. Um, I can't contribute much knowledge myself here because as I have amply demonstrated, I'm taking a Pick ignorant when it comes to Clone Wars and Rebels. Generally, in the idea of the light and dark coming together in balance, and I think that might be an open mm. theme of the trilogy because at the beginning of the Force Awakens, Lord Santaka, his first lines are about, mm. "Oh, there's no, there's no balance without the Jedi." So you get the yeah. sense that things have been very out of balance for a while now, um, and we, you know we see from 
the prequels that it was out of balance because there were you know loads of Jedi and they kind of let their arrogance be their downfall and then the Sith take over obviously in the original trilogy so is the sequel trilogy going to be about acknowledging that both of those perspectives had undesirable results ended in disaster mm-hmm. But can the light and dark work together? Is the dark inherently evil or can it be harnessed for a sense of greater good? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a, a very astute observation. And I think that's, I really can't see how else, like thematically speaking, in the broadest terms, I don't see how else it could go at this point because you really do have to escape this binary because. You can't just have trilogy after trilogy where it's light side versus dark, light side versus dark. Like that, there has to be some, like it has to be complicated somehow. Yeah. Like, and I do think that is what we can realistically expect to see. So I also remember at the start of the novelization, there's a little poem, which obviously claimed to be from the Journal of the Wills. Um, like those famous little alien critters who apparently told the story of the Star Wars a long time in the future from the events of films that gets very convoluted um, and basically the poem like it's all about like the resolving of the dark side and the light and how it's going to like lead to refined Jedi sight and so on and so forth and I think they're really signposting it quite clearly that that is going to be where it goes in the broader sense and I think the interesting thing is going to see going to be seeing like what form does that reconciliation take like what will bring the light side and the dark side together like as such and i really do think it has to be through rain kylo it has to be doesn't it because they're, yeah they're the hero and villain yeah exactly they're each of them are like an embodiment of like a different element of the force like and but it's interesting it's complicated because while you might like looking at it in a cursory sense, you might think Kylo is just the embodiment of the dark side and Ray's the embodiment of the light. And we're really, that's really pushed to us because obviously Ray, her name is literally a pun on Ray of Light. So it's very, very overt. And Kylo Ren, he's literally all dressed in black. He's got all the paraphernalia of a typical Sith. He like seems very dark side to begin with. But then when you look into it, you realize things like Snoke is using Kylo because he's a perfect conduit of light and dark side potential. So it's not that he's pure dark side, it's that he's the combination of the two of them. Yeah. And then if you look at Rey in like just how she comes across and what we were talking about earlier in the main discussion, you really see so much like anger and rage like bubbling up within her, like very understandably given her experiences. And you can really see this like edge of the dark side to her. And in the novelization, when she's standing over Kylo, she literally hears like this evil, ominous voice in her head, which is heavily implied to be Snoke, saying, kill him, kill him. Like, so even though she might, they both appear to be paragons of the opposite sides of the Force, they're more complicated than that. And I think going forward, we're really going to see that more. So they're both complicated people in themselves. And I think that there's going to be this opportunity for reconciliation through those two characters coming together. Yeah, I can see them kind of coming together to balance each other out so that they're not so heavily weighted in one and the other. Like, he's dark with a bit of light and she's light with a bit of dark. Yeah. But who knows how that's going to shift throughout the trilogy, but presumably by the end they would reach some kind of balance. Yeah, 
Exactly. So it basically means, I think, anyone who expects Rey to chop Kylo's head off is going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> but, but who knows? Who knows? What do I know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we will see. At this point with the original trilogy, I'm sure people wanted Luke to kill Vader, right? Yeah, exactly. And didn't you bring up how on, on Twitter, like, someone like, asked, like, one of the guys from the Lucasfilm story group, like, what are the odds of Rey and Kylo becoming a romantic couple? And I think he came back and said something along the lines of, oh, oh no, um, I think it was that he was asked, like, would it seem really weird if they became a romantic couple or something? And then he said, well, it would have seemed really weird, like, if you told people who'd just seen A New Hope that Darth Vader was Luke's father. Yeah. And that's such an interesting comparison. Um, can you remember what was actually said? It was um, Matt Martin, who's a, mm-hmm. kind of a member of the story group. And yeah, it was something like, you know, that being the unexpected twist, because it does not seem likely now. Yes. But, you know, maybe there are little hints in the story that that kind of draw you to that idea of balance. Because people... Are kind of seeing okay well he's really dark she's really light where how would this progress into a story that would be satisfying mm. um and yeah. and yeah you know hero and villain dynamics in star wars once they're established that's the story you know mm. um and vader was luke's shadow so it would you know you you would assume that that means that kylo ren is Ray's shadow. He's the darkness. He's representative of the darkness that is inside her that she maybe hasn't acknowledged, that she's afraid of. Yeah. And she rejects him initially, understandably. But mm-hmm. for the story to progress and for her character to develop, she has to learn somehow not to be afraid of him and to overcome yeah. him with compassion. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Very plausible. Right, and I think with that said, we can move on to our last question, which is another really good one, and it's from Windrose, and it goes, do you think Luke will be Rey's new mentor or father figure in episode eight? Given that Rey is a young adult who is still grown as a person, who would be her new mentor mentor, or role model? As much as Luke is a very likely candidate, I'd love to see more Maz Kanata, more Leia, and some dark side with, some dark side with the face of Kylo Ren. <laughs> I don't think Luke is going to be like a mentor and father figure in the way that Han was. Mm. He slotted into that role, so you can't really compete, like, have it in the exact same way again, right? It would be yeah. almost redundant. Yeah. And I think now Ray's entered this magical world of the Force. She maybe doesn't need someone in a father figure role that explicitly. Mm. Um. But if, if you look at the, the model for heroin journeys, and I know that obviously every journey is different, it has its own nuances, um, mm. the next step in Ray's journey um, would be confronting the powerless father. And that yes. kind of fits with this idea um, that we've heard in spoilers from making Star Wars, that Luke and Ray's relationship is not going to go smoothly. And that mm. um, he is going to either ask her or tell her that, you know, all hope is lost and we need to kill Kylo Ren or you need to kill him. We don't we don't know the specifics, but it seems to be leaning in that direction. And that yeah. socially, Ray doesn't want to do it. Mm. So um, it could be the sense that, oh, he's the mentor in the way that Yoda was, that 
Luke decided to go against his teachings and run off to Cloud City, even though he told him that he shouldn't. Mm. So that she's she's being told to do one thing and then to position herself as the heroine who is making the right decisions, even though they might not seem right at the time. She she says, no, I'm not going to kill him. I think it's this whole idea of the older generation having to have done something wrong somehow that the younger generation has to put right. Because in the original trilogy, the whole point is that Luke needs to like kind of fix like the complete screw up that his father made of the galaxy. Yeah. That is like Luke's responsibility and position in those films. Like when you look at it on the macro scale. And so I think that now Luke himself is that older generation. He can't be all perfect, like omnipotent and never make any mistakes. Luke must have gone wrong somewhere and Luke has to be like misguided or misled or like making the wrong decisions because if Luke were doing everything right and if Luke were the one that we were absolutely meant to root for in every respect then Luke would be the hero Luke would be the protagonist of episode 8 but he's clearly not going to be he's a supporting character so I think they're really setting up for there to be almost antagonism there eventually I don't think it's going to literally be like right off the bat they hate each other but I, I can see there being like a sense of unease and like mutual like suspicion and distrust because Luke's been alone for so long looking at it purely from like the level of like just the human experience and what you'd be like as a person after presumably being isolated for like four or five years you'd be a bit strange <laughs> to put it mildly um, and you'd also maybe lose some of your ability like for how to relate to people like in, in a normal day-to-day sense so I don't see him being particularly welcoming or lovely to Ray to be honest um, so I think that's immediately going to set the relationship off to a challenging start and yeah like Kirsty was saying about the rumours we've been hearing it seems that Luke is <sighs> like going to be opposed to Ray and he's going to have very different ideas about where things should go and that that's going to further drive a wedge between them. Yeah, and I think if you look at, um, you know, it's clear from the the opening of The Force Awakens when you see, the, you know, oh, Leia is looking for her brother Luke because she thinks that he's going to solve all the problems. Like, he needs to come yeah. back and fix it. And the fact that Ray is the new hero, it kind of sets up that idea that Luke is probably not going to be the person to do it. So they're just yeah. looking for him throughout the movie. Ray goes to see him. It's like, you're our only hope, but he's not. Just like Obi-Wan wasn't Leia's only hope, Luke was. Mm. Because it's the new generation, as you say. Like, it's always the person that comes in and, and they don't realize that that person's going to be the savior. But they will be because they're the protagonist. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, so I think like Luke himself is going to be, he's really going to take people by surprise, I think, in episode eight. Yeah. Because people are super attached to Luke, understandably, because obviously he's the hero of the original films. But I think people have built up this like mythologized version of Luke Skywalker in their heads. And I think some people are probably going to be quite upset by how they go because they it's going to be a struggle for some people to appreciate that Luke now serves this new story and these new characters. The story isn't like centered around Luke. Like it's not all 
like about Luke's character and what would be awesome for Luke as a person. That isn't going to be what dictates or determines the story. It's going to be about what makes an interesting story and a dramatic story and a good story. And yeah, I think that's going to involve seeing a Luke who's a little bit nutty. <laughs> Personally. Yeah, if you looked at the art of the Force Awakens book, they had all these ideas about Luke being kind of dark and not not all there and like lying in the sand as it buried him and all these yes artistic <laughs> ideas. I love that one. They're exploring oh what the hell has happened to this character in the last thirty years, but I wonder how much of that will still remain in this idea of him because he can't be everything that the other characters have hoped for because otherwise that's it. It's like oh well you can save the world and then that's it. And Luke already saved the world. That's yeah. the thing. Like he already did that. So. Now, something awful has happened 30 years later or 20, 23 years later or whatever happened at the, the, um, with the Padawans. Mm. Um, so he's going to be probably bitter, disillusioned. Like There's going to be some kind of setback in him that, that Ray's introduction into the story is going to somehow address. Yeah, no, exactly. And I don't mean to say that Luke is purely going to be a negative force or that he's going to be just a straight up horrible person who bears no resemblance to the person we got to know in the original trilogy. No, but it's all about him serving Ray's development now. Yeah, no, exactly. And I I think if anything, like we'll see Luke like snap out of it, like most likely not until nine, but I think he's clearly going to be in some kind of funk in episode eight. Like he is not happy to see Ray. When she shows up, yeah, he's like, "Oh God!" <laughs> <laughs> he, he's it's almost like he's been interrupted. Like he was actually quite enjoying like his private island paradise, <laughs> and like he's just kind of like, "Oh, screw you, God!" Like you, he he just can't be doing with it anymore. And to be fair, I kind of feel that Luke's earned the right to feel like that by the point of the Force Awakens. So like you say he's already saved the galaxy. It's like, does he really have to save it again? I, I don't think he especially wants to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Um, I think a lot of fans are like, oh, we've waited so long to see what happens to the characters. And, oh, things have already been ruined by the new generation. That You know, mm. Kylo Ren has destroyed everything that Luke was working towards. But that's how you get the story, right? It's far more interesting yeah. to see it now. And then, you know, in episode eight, we'll, we'll learn more about how that all went down. But we're going to see that kind of be rectified. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just kind of this fan fiction idea of, oh, well, this is what happened after Return of the Jedi and everything was wonderful. Yeah. And like you say, I think throwing us right into the midst of it when everything's gone to hell, that makes it just instantly more exciting. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea of how exactly things went wrong with Ben Solo. And I'm really looking forward to experiencing that story. But I can understand why they didn't go and tell that story. Like, beyond the logical constraints. Because obviously, like, the original trilogy cast are a certain age. You can't pretend that, like, Carrie Fisher is the mother of an (laughs) eight-year-old. Or something at this stage. Um, So they had to take these kinds of things into account when they thought about the story they were going to tell. But I think, yeah, I think from a dramatic point of view, it still makes the most sense that they chose the window that they did. Yeah, I think it's it's really cool to have this look at the Skywalkers kind of from the perspective of an outsider 
that range mm. like, oh god, what have I got into? I don't want to be yes. part of this, you know. Yeah, what a clusterfuck. Center, and now she's going off to find the mythical Luke Skywalker and what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, we know because she's the hero that at some point she has to save people and figure it all out. But you, you can't really tell how at the moment. Exactly. And that's where the excitement lies. It's very, it's very good. <laughs> right. I think we are up to two hours, oh which is, I know, it's quite unbelievable. But I think that is probably the counter telling us to stop. <laughs> um, if anyone's still listening to this, do we? <laughs> yeah, if you if you are here at this point, wow, <laughs> thank you so much. You're amazing. Rambling. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think now is probably a good time to finish up. So I am Rachel. I am known as Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr. And I also have a WordPress blog called Journal of the Star Wars, which you are welcome to look up if you want to see my rambles and my writings. And Kirsty? Um, I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr. People can find me there. And I would love to hear what people thought of the podcast or if they have questions for us next time. Yes, no, 100%. That's so important. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, please, if you have questions, obviously just send them in to either of our Tumblrs. And we will absolutely do our best to get to them. We'll, if we get enough questions, we'll aim to leave a bigger question time. So then we'll get to all of you. And you'll hopefully get to enjoy our delicious rambles. <laughs> right. Okay. I think that's us done. So thank you very much, Kirsty, And I look forward to next time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.